Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. Welcome back. This is Julie Bates with the podcast, Training the Pointing Labrador, episode number 183. And I called the last one 183 because it's hard for me to stay on top of this stuff. Anyway, this is the 183rd episode and uh, the first day of 2022. So, of course, the first thing I want to do is wish everybody the very best of this year. Um, I've had a bunch of people come to the kennel that called me later and said, oh, by the way, I was exposed to the Omicron variant. <laughs> and it's just like, finally, the crazy has gotten out here in the middle of nowhere. So I'm very glad that I train, I'm outside and mostly with more dogs. And when I'm working with people, we're all far away, throwing birds and doing stuff. So I just, I want to stay healthy and I certainly want every one of you to uh, as well. So Good luck with everything and let's all everyone's hoping that this year is a big improvement in a variety of ways the insanity uh the pandemic and also just opportunities to go do the things that we all love to do so wishing the best for everyone uh today's thing is going to be i'm going to have two listener questions because i have two that i wanted to get to and then i'm going to go into the first part of a series about training dogs the people side of training dogs but the first thing I do want to do is a, a G update. And we did, uh, we did Upland last week. And her, you know, I've kind of let you know what her thing was all along here. And so what she was doing, you know, was she do, finally I got her to, to hold on the point and not do anything. And so then she'd hold until the gun went off. And then we, I, but I didn't go after that. I told you I really did a lot more of the blind work just to get her in the mindset of, doing what she knew I was asking her to do. Anyway, we went out last week. Perfect on every bird. Ah, oh, I wish I could have filmed it. But I'm too busy, like, running the dog or worrying about filming stuff. Uh, so anyway, she, <laughs> she was perfect. And her sister pointed her birds. Um, I've been kind of really getting interventional with her on her point because she would flash point and go. And she did not do that on uh, the birds this time. So she is on the right track, too. We're coming along. Just funny. Two litter, two phenomenal parents in terms of pointing. Well, everything. But really in terms of pointing. Um, and here she is just a little wild and crazy. But she is a little wild and crazy. So, again, I don't get mad. I'm just going to find a way to get into her head and have her understand exactly what the expectations are. So very good things, very good marking, very good blinds. I'm looking forward to the season. We have some more months to get ready, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. So uh, listener questions. I want to get to two of them, and I've got one right in front of me that I'm going to read, and I promised him I would get to his soon. He said some very kind things. He said he's listened to everyone. Oh, my goodness. I wonder if he's okay. Uh, wow, that you think that would just put you in a coma. All right. My question to you is, I've heard you say you don't use a collar correction on a wrong left or right cast. I mean, or overcasts, I believe is what he's talking about when you're given an overcast. I've got a, a dog with a finished pass that knows darn well which way I'm casting. But when she decides, quote unquote, her own route, what is the correct way to discipline and recorrect? She's two and a half and is awesome, but every once in a while she thinks she's no better, knows better. Please advise. Okay, do you know any she's in the world that really don't think they know better? Just saying, just saying. Okay, 
no, you do not. And this isn't Julie says. This is you go anywhere with anyone that has done this for a long time and, and successfully. You don't burn on overcast. This is why. So in all, virtually all of the modern uh, electric collar training programs, the electricity is used to enforce a completely clearly known and enforceable behavior. For example, sit. You can enforce sit in the beginning, right? You do it with a leash or a healing stick or I like the little wiffle bat. Um, and then you can later replace that with enforcement with the collar. It is an enforcement of sit. It is something that they clearly understand. There is absolutely no question if you blow the whistle or you say sit, what it is you're asking. Absolutely no question. So whether they're thinking about it, thinking they want to do something else, thinking nothing at all, immediately that comes into play. They know what that is and they understand the enforcement of it. Same thing with here or whatever you say. In the beginning it was a leash and later on it turned, on to, it turned into the collar enforcement of come to me. There is absolutely no question about what that means. Either the tweet tweet of the whistle or the word that you use, that means to come to you. So no matter what else they're thinking, no matter what's going on, no matter what's on their mind, when they hear tweet tweet or that, they know what it means. And when you enforce it, they completely understand and know what to do. So when you collar condition, you collar condition mostly on those two words. Um, on heel, on here, and and uh, sit. You might use it in on a heel, and uh, later on we use it a little bit on woe for the pointing guys, up very low level. I hope, um, not not too much else. Sometimes some people, and eventually on the when you're doing the handling stuff, right, which is what we're talking about here, you force fetch, and then you I don't if you're old style, you force fetch with the with a mechanical pressure and then a stick fetch and then you move into eventually because they're getting further away from you collar enforcement of fetch and that would be on fetch or back those would be the words so that if you said fetch and then you switch it over to back because you're forcing to the back pile that would be back nick back All right it is you make it clear that based on your initial force fetch, which means you've got to pick it up, you got to pick it up. Now with the collar, we can have them go pick it up 50 yards or 100 yards or whatever away from us. They understand and they know exactly what to do when you say back. And that's your job to have taught them well. When you force the dog to the back pile, they know that when the hand comes up with a back cast, with a back cast, which is the same as the verbal back, right? When your right or left hand comes up straight up, that means go back. That is where you start. That's why some of you that might be listening to this, I always tell you, they're all worried about overs. It's like, let's don't worry about the overs before you get the back. Let's get back going really well. And you can do casting stuff with no electricity at all. But when you're doing the T and you are forcing, it is a beginning all about back. We're not going to have a bunch of stuff in the middle of it. That's very confusing because you want extreme clarity on what the word back means. And they also know exactly what it means, no matter what they're thinking or what else is going on. When you say back, just like sit or hear, that's very clear. And they know what it means. 
because the enforcement you've conditioned the response with pressure. You have conditioned the response with pressure. That's why they call it collar conditioning. You are teaching the dog to understand how to control the pressure and they understand it clearly in the way that dogs can. Sit means bottom goes to the ground. Here means go to you. Back means go away from me. Away, not laterally or some other direction. Go away from me to this pile that is out in front of us. That's what it means. And you have conditioned the dogs to understand that. That's why you can go to events and there's all stuff going on and you put your hand down and you say the word back and they go. Because they know they have to go. Because they have been conditioned to go. Therefore, when you're talking about putting collar pressure on their attitude or what they're thinking, one, you don't know what they're thinking. I know what it seems like they're thinking, but you don't know. When you say sit, it doesn't matter what they're thinking. That's a pretty cut and dry, clear bottom drops. But when you're, and when you say back, that's a pretty cut and dried, go in a direction away from me. That's what it means. And then we later really refine that, working on the T and pattern blinds and then blinds. So when a dog is out there and you're running, you're handling, and you're, whatever, you're running a blind, and you want to get a slight left angle back, and your dog doesn't do it, all right, for one, you really, do, I mean, you kind of guess pretty good. You know the dog, you know their tendency in certain things. But you do not know, and I have yet to meet the dog that said, I know what you want, but I'm just going to go some other way, and you can just light me up with the collar. I have never met that dog, never. And people are listening to this going, oh, she ought to have old Hank here with me. And I was like, no, not even him. No dog says, I want you to cause a lot of pain to me because I just want to do whatever I want. That's, that's not what they do. Maybe you don't know what they're thinking. Maybe there are a series of things you've done that lend them to believe that they can, that this over going kind of sideways, uh, another direction is, is, you know, what you want. There could be a lot of things. You could have put a lot of overs in on your double T, which I don't know why everyone likes to do that. Eventually, yes, put them in there. But, and again, I wouldn't emphasize them heavily because we want momentum in the opposite direction. So <laughs> when, when you, if you've done a lot of the over stuff, and let's say you don't even know it, and I'm just setting up hypotheticals. Maybe you would do two backs and then over to the right and over to the left and one more to the right, and then you do another back and then you do a leftover. So you created this kind of thought process in their mind where I go back a little and then I go over. I don't, I mean, sometimes if people do that and then they wonder, why is this dog taking it over right in the middle of this blind? Uh, because it could be that somewhere inadvertently you taught the dog some kind of response that you are unaware you're teaching. I, that happens all the time, all the time. It happens to me. It happens all the time. But my point is, when the, you stop the dog out there and you want that slide angle back and they take a, a right over, you, they're not going, oh, screw you, I'm going to just endure a lot of pain and make you unhappy. Not doing that. 
they may, they may, what I, we could, they could be thinking a lot. She could be thinking, no, I smelled something and I think it's over here. That could be it. That could be, no, you always do this and that. Therefore, I'm going to take this over. So you cannot, you don't cast and burn ever. There's no context, no context for a cast and a burn because the, the collar means something to do, either sit or come to me or go away from me. But this, okay, I want you to go 90 degrees from me. There's no context for that in a dog's mind. They don't do geometry. They do not. And because we do, we assume they do. So no. When your dog does not take the cast you need, I would hope most of the time you at least give them a chance in case there was, you know, some reason. Somebody was behind you moving. A lot of times, folks, when you're going to give a, a, this left cast, so you move over to the right to give a big left cast and wonder why the dog goes to the right. I see that very frequently. <laughs> you're in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I need this left cast. And so you move over to, and they're sitting there watching you move to the right. You just told them you're going to go to the right. Uh, so it could, I would suspect something of that nature is in there when these guys do that. You have to be very cautious of everything that you're doing. If you give this left cast for some reason and the dog takes a goes to the right, okay, give him one chance to where we stop. Give that a little slightly larger. Give that cast again. If they still do the other thing, then the way you address a dog not taking the correct cast for an unknown reason is you stop them with sit pressure. It's indirect pressure on sit. And if they take the wrong cast again, a little more indirect pressure on sit. And even though that may, may not make human sense to you, it will stop the dog from doing this thing that keeps bringing this sit pressure on sit. And then it will take a more of a left cast. That is how you address a dog that is is genuinely taking the wrong cast you don't know exactly why and it's not so you use the collar on it guarantee that so use indirect pressure on sit be careful of your body movements and then get the cast that you want if you have this problem now then there's some kind of rhythm going with you guys and you're going to have to simplify things and maybe set up you know a big old pattern bunch of blinds you know four five six of them run them we each one with increasingly crosswind to it and just teach this dog, hey, you know, listen, just stay with me. Be careful. I won't move funny, and we're going to get casts, at least where you're giving me your very best effort. You just don't know what she's thinking. You can't punish on overs. There's no context for that. They either want to sit or go. They get confused, and I'll bet you it's never worked for you, and that's why. So I hope that it's way more simple, way more simple. The way I get dogs to load on, onto my trailer that won't load, and they can, they're capable, is indirect pressure on set. If I ask them to get in and I know I've shown them, you know, I've tossed them in there several bunch of times and they're not getting in, I'll use a little indirect pressure on sit. They pop right in there. It's like, all right, this is what happens if you don't get in, sit neck. If they don't get in a little higher, sit neck. They're just jumping right in, right? So <laughs> that's how that works in dogs' heads. So give that a try. That should be somewhat useful to you. All right. 
That was a big one. The next question is I got is, because somebody is sending me their dog, and everyone that sends me dogs, if they're not competitive, they're going, all right, I don't want a field trial dog. <laughs> like, that makes any difference. And so, because they said, I don't want you to, I don't want my dog trained like your competitive dogs. I'm, you know, mine's a hunting dog and da-da-da. So, uh, and I, my answer to that is, okay. Because <laughs> that doesn't change anything that I do. Uh, it, particularly in terms of fundamental basics. So I try to explain it to people. I don't know what they think. You know, if you're going to have a competitive dog, then we're going to start, you know, retrieving birds at 300 yards, and we're going that's none of that. None, no. So training a dog for any of these things related to birds and retrieving and possibly handling or at least, you know, sitting quiet in the blind or whatever, is comprised of basic obedience. Any dog that you own and you have in your life is comprised of basic obedience where they listen and they're agreeable and they understand what the expectations are. Whether you want a field champion, a four-time Grandmaster Point Retriever, or just a really nice hunting dog. You still want a dog when you go, hey, Fang, come here. Comes right over there. When a bird flies up, Fang doesn't chase it. Everybody needs that for everything. So, you have your basic obedience, you have a force fetch. Yes, hunting dogs that are force fetch. No one's ever said, rats, this dog just hands me every bird. Oh, I'm so sorry I had that done. This doesn't happen. Um, you need that, and then you need practice. One, on locating birds they saw drop. It, it, it's That's, on the one to 10 important scale, that's a 15. I don't care what you're doing. If you're hunt, you ever go hunting in South Dakota, near the river there where there's a lot of cattails and stuff, and your pheasant drops in there, it's sure nice to have a dog that located what stand of cattails it went into and then dives in there and then stays in there until it comes out with the bird. That's a skill. That is a taught skill. And if it's the the fourth bird on the last series of the amateur, or it's the you know the last series of the of the uh, on the watermarks in the in the APLA, whatever it is, you need the dog to really focus on where the bird went down, understand how things look, understand how that will change when they get out there, and to come up with it quickly. You need that no matter what you do, land and water things. Do they have to go perfectly straight for hunting dogs? Gosh, no, especially if you do ice water. But they do know, need to know to make a, a very diligent effort to get to the bird as efficiently as possible. If that's running around the ice stuff and jumping in, that's fine. But they can't think, well, let me just wait, take a little time, and find the easiest way. We don't want that. you got to get that bird for it floats away or sinks or does whatever. So... Does the application of what you've trained change? Yes. And if you do want to run the big time stuff, then we are you are going to have to stretch them out. I Every hunting dog I train runs 300-yard blinds. You can tell me there's no hunting dog in the world that has to do a 300-yard blind, and I don't care. I'm still going to have mine because in case he ever does, then <laughs> that's it. It was like that was Hank at the end of the book. Hank had to do this big old, big old long blind because of, I can't even remember anymore what it was. He had to do that, and he could because the guy had practiced that. So, no, you the application of the of the tools are different, but the fundamentals on that dog and the relationship you have with them, 
shouldn't be any different at all. And they need to be quiet online, and they need to wait to be sent, and they can't chase stuff around, and they need to be a team player. So uh, that's my answer to, to that. That's how they are trained, and I don't know why you'd want anything else. You don't have a lower set of standards <laughs> for a hunting dog because they all need to be team players and do what they're capable of doing. So those are the two questions. Okay, so two, I've already cut kind of a lot into my time here, so I won't go on too much about this. I do have a series of things I would really like to get across. Again, this is for people who are kind of interested in the self-examination side of this, which is, I don't know, the only way you get better, but <laughs> a lot of people aren't too much into that. So that's what I'm going to talk about is we're going into a new year. You know, a lot of people have new dogs. Um, a lot of people have new goals or They've done pretty well, and they're kind of wondering what's next. So I'm just going to talk about my ideas. I'm not putting myself up as a guru of anything. Um, not that. I learn stuff every single day. And the day I stop doing that is the day I need to leave and quit. Um, but I, I'm just going to talk about having made, I've been doing this a very long time, <laughs> Started this stuff in 1982, all right? So I've been doing it a long time and have made so many mistakes and been through so, so much. Back in those early days, um, and, and I'll say a couple of things. One, because I had a discussion with one of my clients, how he was lucky that he was right here where we all are because there's a lot of good dogs and a lot of good dog people here and a lot of opportunities, you know, to learn how to do things right. And he said how lucky he was compared to some other folks and I just said, I don't know, I guess luck, yeah, a bit, but not really. When I first started, and I started in field trials stuff, just started right there. And I went to some field trials and watched. I, I trained with some people and threw birds. Um, by the way, for a year, I threw birds for the field trial guys. Didn't have a dog. I, I don't know, I started paying my dues. Still do. I still throw more birds than almost anybody else. But I wasn't all about, oh, I want to do this and that. I was all about, I'm going to go out here and just throw birds and just watch this stuff and learn what's going on. And I and then I went to some field trials, and I was at field trials. There was a lot of variety of people, and I was just watching because that's kind of what I do. And I was just watching, and uh, I was watching everybody because I was getting into it. I had just gotten a dog, right? Just gotten a puppy, and I needed to get training groups. I needed to... I was doing all this stuff, and I was at a field trial, and I was watching everybody, and Danny Farmer was there, and if anyone doesn't know who he is, he's one of the all-time great retriever trainers, field trialers of all time. I think he's second behind Lardy for how many nationals here his dogs have won, but anyway, he's he is a gifted person, and I watched everybody, and I watched him, and I went, okay, that's who I want to learn from, and granted, he's this big fancy guy, right, from down south. And, and uh, I, that's who I learned from. And you know, I went to seminars and trained with them when I could and did everything that I could and learned all my basics, all my basics, obedience, force fetch, swim by, double T, all of that I learned from him. And I wrote, took 60 pages of notes at his seminar. So that was the only way I'd been taught that, you know, if you're going to do something, do it like that, no other way. So, I don't know, was that luck? <laughs> I had to work my tail off to learn from that guy. But, so, one of the things is, I would just offer that approach to people. If you're just training with the guys down the, you know, down the lane over here, 
um, then that's what you're going to have. And if that's okay, fine. I don't badmouth that at all. But if you want to get better, you need to be around people that are better than you are. Not because they say they are, but because they actually are. So that's something to think about. Now, that's not fun because then you're not the cool one, you know, and you're not your dog maybe isn't doing what their dogs are doing and stuff. But if you do want to get better, that's the only way. So I'm just going to say the ego thing in this for people is uh, incredible to me. I was reading on online the other night. A bunch of people were talking about who, you know, how great they all were and how much they knew compared to everybody else. It was like, wow, how do you even say that? It just amazes me. How can you say how good you are? That, uh, I don't know, different generation, I guess. But anyway, if you want to get better, then you've got to find a way. If you have to travel or do something or be annoying, be with people who are better than you are. That's one of the first things. There is a phase that we all go through. And boy, do I know it. Because I had I gotten my first dog, and I think then I had gotten another one. And I had actually I derby listed the dogs, and uh, I won a qualifying with one of them. And I, you know, shoot, I was like, I knew stuff. And I, I did Danny Farmer's everything. The thing was I had exceptionally good dogs. And boy, does that make you look good? But And I love mom all for that. But I had those, and I, I did it his way, and I'd check in with him and stuff like that. And, and I just thought I was awesome. And I really needed to bestow everybody with my great knowledge. And I was, uh, when I was in grad school, I was living with this uh, Chesapeake lady. She had Chesapeake's. And they're actually pretty decent. And so I was going to help her, right? And I was showing her how you do casting and lining and how you do the force of the pile. And I, and I was just bestowing my knowledge all over her. I didn't know a thing about a Chesapeake. They're a little different, you know, a little different approach, a little different kind of motivations they have. I mean, they're, they can be just fantastic, right? But I am just helping this lady, and she just wouldn't do what I said. And it was so frustrating. And I remember thinking, well, you'll never be any good if you don't. Oh, my gosh, I wish somebody would have hit me with a stick. Because now, decades later, you know, I should have just shut my mouth, you know, thrown birds for her. But, you know, since I had done these things, I figured I was, I was hot stuff. And I think that that's a stage that we all go through. It's a, just the biggest waste of time, but it's a stage we have to all go through. And you have to be humbled a whole lot, you know, before you actually start to come out of that. And when you do come out of I know everything... And you realize how much you don't know is when you just begin to start getting good. That's all I'm gonna say. That's a fact. Now I'm old enough I can say this stuff now, but that's a fact. When I watch people who have done one or two dogs and you know done pretty well, just like I had, you know, and then they're taking people's money and they're training dogs for them and they're helping everybody out, and I just I look like my little wiener dog when she hears a funny noise, like my head's cocked, and I'm like. Wow, how do you, how, really? You know, but that's how it is. So I just, you know, just stay humble. That's all I can do is just stay humble. It to, is to tell everybody. I remember um, uh, Michael Jordan, if the stories are true, I was not there, but when he was playing and after practice and he would go and shoot free throws for an hour or two, whatever it was, like zillions of them, 
you know, arguably the greatest, one of the greatest, one of the greatest of all time uh, basketball players is shooting more free throws than anybody else. I rest my case for anybody that wants to be a little bit better than they are. Instead of bestowing your knowledge on everybody, how about gathering a little more skill and knowledge yourself? That's time better spent. If it's all about your ego, then I'm, I can't help you. No one can. But if it's about a little bit of improvement, then do the Michael Jordan thing. Go and do extra work. Go, you know, make mistakes. Do sometimes find out, gosh, that was not the thing to do. I won't do that again. But go work on things instead of spending your time helping all the other people. Because one, you aren't going to help them. They, they don't. And, and two, you don't, that's, you don't get better that way. You don't get better telling other people what to do. Michael Jordan didn't get better at free throws by telling other people how to shoot free throws. He got better by shooting a lot of free throw shots. And it's very, very true in this. So the first thing I would say to anyone that is training their dog and, you know, getting ready now or getting into 2022, new season, maybe new dogs, maybe you want to try some new things with it. I would uh, assess a little bit what your motivations are and what how you are in this. How much of this is ego? Because when I was doing the field trial stuff and then helping everybody after that, you know, I was all because it made me feel like the work that I had done. You know, look, look at everything I've done. I'm just really, I can really help you guys. <laughs> that made me a little bit of a uh, one of the guys in the know, right? That's a good feeling. I was not. I don't know that anyone looked at me that way, but I did. <laughs> and maybe a brand new person would. But I just look back at that and just laugh. And, you know, because I see other people doing that all the time. And, may, you know, go ahead and go through it. But sit there and go, all right, what am I in this for? What do I really want? Do I really want to get better? Or do I just want to feel kind of like a big shot? And if you do, then you're going to have to stay around people that don't know very much so that you can do that. But if you want to get better, then kill the passing on all your wisdom. And I would say, and, and now this, I'm a little bit soapboxy here and forgive me about this, but pay your darn dues. You know, pay your darn dues. That's not a thing you hear anymore, but I don't care if you're 16 years old or 26 years old. Pay your dues. If you're in a training group, be the first one out to throw the longboard. Be the one planting the blind. Be the one that does it. Be the one, not just, I did it last week, you do it this week. Be that one. Go out there and watch what the dogs are doing out where that mark goes down. You will learn more about setting up marks, being out there and seeing what happens, than you will sitting in the gallery, you know, waxing uh, eloquent about what's happening. Go out there and do that stuff. Do the work. Be out there. Watch every dog. If you're going to stand around and talk and laugh, you know, then good. Pay somebody like me to do all the work. That's great. But if you want to get better, be out there. And and if you're a, for anybody that's a pro, I'll bet you there's almost no pros listening to this. Because they already know stuff, right? But it, just in case you are or you take other people's money, work harder than all the people. Work harder than your bird throwers. Work hard if you have them. Work harder than your clients. You want to get better at this stuff? 
go do more work. Go do more sweat. If you want to just stand around and lecture, you have hit your glass ceiling and you aren't going to get very much better. And you don't get better by talking. You get better by shooting free throws, particularly when people are not around. I think that I learned most of the things that I do in the upland field now that, you know, the D chase and the stand in gun range and, and some of the other things that make things go well out there. I never learned, I, and I've talked to pointer experts and some of the better people in the pointing lab world, I, you know, all of them with great respect and listen to everything. But where I really, really started to really figure some things out and understand the dogs a little bit more was those long hours out in the field with just me and those dogs. And sometimes it was 95 degrees and I was like, what am I doing here? I got a different education. I should be sitting in a nice office air conditioning. But I was out there and, and watching the dogs and watching the dogs and struggling and not knowing what to do and then beginning to see a few things and put a few things together. That's where I was out shooting 10,000 free throws and you begin to understand some things. And, and then you don't go <laughs> tell everybody, hey, I have it all figured out. Listen to everything I say. I mean, did I do that in the sense of writing a book? Yeah, I just put out what some of the things I figured out because uh, it would be nice for people to know. But I'm not going to walk over and give you the benefit of my great knowledge because I just don't think I have that. I just have shot a lot of free throws. And that's how you get better in this. So that's just a first way to look at this. I'm going to get into some of the details of some things over the next one or two of these. I'm not going to go on too long. And then, you know, it's kind of a little tough today, but if you want to get better, um, the nicey nice thing, I don't know, there's not a coach on the planet that does that. And you've got to kind of face some things about yourself. You are your greatest limitation. You are not your distance from the next knowledgeable person. You are your greatest limitation or your absolute greatest advantage to getting better and better, all depending on how you look at this, what you see as your role, if your ego is put away and not in the middle of this stuff, and if you're willing to do the free throw stuff. So before we get into setting up a program that you can use for yourself, let's just do a little bit of a self-evaluation on this for now and kind of decide how you're going to go about this. And for everyone that already thinks they know everything, you know, uh, well, that's a tough place to be. <laughs> There's only one way to go, and that's humbly rolling downwards. But you go in this real humble and eager and looking for every opportunity to learn, including sitting at the long station and throwing birds for three hours, uh, you will get better, and you'll get genuinely better. And then people really will, you know, look up to you and want to know what you think. So that's today's soapbox. Uh, a little bit longer than normal, but not too much. So I'll be back. It's uh, We have our first snowfall. First snowfall of the entire year is the next year. <laughs> so on January 1st, we finally get a little bit of snow. That's a good thing, but it's going to warm up soon, so we'll be back at it. A very, very happy new year and a very safe and healthy one for everybody. And G and Kai and I will be back uh, soon for the next one.